I was uh, blessed this week to go and spend some time with our students down at Beach Project. I um, was able to teach down there uh, to the students in general and also meet with about 20 students individually and encourage them, including our students. And God's doing a great work, not just in our students and all the students there, um, but uh, was really encouraged with conversations with Brooke and Tyler and Eric, Brooke, uh, coming to know the Lord personally this summer, uh, learning the gospel and understanding it for the first time. And Tyler Harris being encouraged uh, to walk closer with the Lord and Eric being challenged by working at Whataburger and, um, and uh, realizing that he needs to finish his college degree. All these spiritual things are being taught and learned there. And I'm excited about uh, those students coming back to us. And please remember them. They have about three weeks left. Remember them in your prayers. Ask God we continue to challenge them and teach them. Bring them back to be an encouragement to us as a body. Let's take your, uh, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Ephesians. We're in chapter 4 now. We've, we've uh, finished the first half of the letter. A letter that I believe is the greatest letter Paul ever wrote. Um, I, I, I know that others would debate other letters, but I believe this to be pure Pauline theology, both taught and applied in its most radical and most beautiful and the most fascinating manner. Even greater to me than the book of Romans, which is great. We could get in a debate about those things. That's okay. Um, but, but Ephesians is the pinnacle of Paul's writings. Paul is pouring his heart out to a church that he loves, that he planted, that he labored with, that he prayed for, that he installed their leadership, that he passed them off to the next generation of leaders, as we read in, the chap in, in Acts, in, in, the, in the writings of Luke, in the history of the early church. He loves these people, and yet he's burdened for them that they don't forget the truth that he has taught them previously, and he's reminding them of that the first three chapters. Today's message is entitled, A Life That Is Worthy of Our Calling. Because what happens here in chapter 4 is a transition from pure, solid theology and doctrine into the application of that theology and doctrine. And I was encouraged, I don't know if you caught it, but Oh Great God, written by uh, Bob Coughlin. I love the song. I love Bob's writing in general. The reason we sing a lot of his music is he is so biblical, not just in what he says, but how he says it. If you'll go look at the verses, the first two verses of his song, Oh Great God, are pure, solid doctrine. And then the key change, and then the application. Where did he learn such a method? He studied the New Testament. He read Paul's letters. He sees a pattern. He tries. He doesn't always copy it, but often he copies this pattern. I think it's a good thing for us as teachers in our homes, dads, to teach this way. If you took a week or so to teach a doctrine and then a week or so to apply that doctrine, I think it's a great way to teach. I think the, that through time we've seen this method tested, that we lay a foundation, then we build on the foundation. We lay a foundation, we build on that section of the foundation. That's what Paul's doing here. Our day is a day of scandals, not unlike the day which Paul wrote in. 
The International Monetary Chief has been forced to resign and faces a possible trial for sexual misconduct, harassment, possibly rape. We don't know if it'll go to trial. France has a different legal system than we do. It might go to trial, but yet he's already lost his job. He's lost his position. Here in the United States, we have recently seen the ouster or the resignation of great political stars. They've fallen, and they've had to be removed or they've removed themselves from the public positions they once held. One of those men, New York Representative Anthony Weiner, said this at his resignation press conference. Listen to these words. I'm here today to again apologize for the personal mistakes I've made and the embarrassment I've caused. I make this apology to my neighbors and my constituents, and I make it particularly to my wife, Uma. Uma did not attend this press conference, though she pledges she will stand beside her husband as he recovers and is rehabilitated from his addictions. In this confession, we don't find a confession of sin. You might have thought it was that, but he didn't confess to any sin. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. And I would venture to say if you dug into his personal life, as many have, you would find that this mistake was well calculated and thought out and repeated over and over and over again. It was no mistake. It was a pattern of sin, and it was brought to light. And enforced his resignation, embarrassed his family, his wife, and his constituents, as he said. Forced him to have to resign his office. And this isn't anything new. This isn't anything new. We have seen many in high offices. Presidents, senators, representatives, governors, city leaders, county leaders, pastors, CEOs of companies. All resigning because of their conduct, because of their personal lives which they thought mistakenly were separated from their office. They thought they could live one life in the public eye and another life behind closed doors. And that would be kept secret from everyone they loved and represented. There's nothing further from the truth. You cannot live a double life all of your life. And if you did pull that charade off, some of you are pulling it off now, but if, even if you did live that way all of your life, you will never slide by the judge of heaven and earth. He sees us. He knows us. The repeated mantra as these people resign or are kicked from their offices is, you did not uphold the integrity of your office. And yet, many people follow in their tracks. Don't, let's don't fool ourselves to think that the last pastor has had to resign because of his sin. Or the last representative or senator has had to step aside because of sin. No. No, this is going to continue. Because men try to live duplicitous lives. It is our character to hide, not to come into the light. Not to live a life of confession. Our natural man runs and, and rebels against the idea of accountability. This morning we have an opportunity to hear from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul has something very strong to say to the believers of Ephesus about exactly this kind of misconduct. 
that has been brought to light in our day, it was happening in Paul's day also. Look what he says to them, the believers. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uphold the office, we might say, in our day. Do this, walk according to the high calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First thing that we see here in chapter 4 is that we must live out our calling as children of God. Paul, drawing on the Old Testament, gives us a command that's based on an already stated position. We are children of God, now we must live that out. It's much like the uh, commands of Joshua to the people of Israel in his day. You have the land. This is your land. God has given you this land. Now, go take the land. It's, it's based, the command is based off an already held position. Paul is not saying, and he is not saying in chapter 4, 5, or 6, do these things to be a child of God. Don't ever make that mistake. He's saying, you are a child of God. You have been called. You have received a high calling. Now live like you have been called. The living comes after the calling, not prior to. You can never get that backwards. If you do, then you are not saved. You're a works-based hypocrite who will be exposed. He says here that we're to live according to our call. But notice in the first part of the verse, he says that we should look back. I, therefore. The word, therefore, is reflexive. It pushes us back. It's much like Romans 12, verse 1. It's, it's the transition. It's the hinge. You could say the whole book hinges, moves around this statement. This is the hinge. The doctrinal door is opened and shut based on this verse. I, therefore, What's he pushing us back to? He's pushing us back to the theology of chapter 1, where the call is first presented. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That begins to unfold for us this high calling that we have received. Right there in verse 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He not only has chosen us, but he has predestined us in chapter 1, verse 5. He has done this to his own praise and his glory because he is to be blessed. He is to be praised. In him, verse 7 says, we have redemption through his blood. So we've been elected, we've been predestined, and we now... Christ has redeemed us by giving his life. By laying down, blood is the representative word for life. It's not literally meant that the blood had some kind of mystical power. If that had been the case, those splattered at the foot of the cross would have been the most saved of all men. And yet, we have no record that all of them were saved. The mystical power is not present in the blood, but rather in the life of Christ. 
When the blood flowed out, life was flowing out. He was laying down his life. And so when the scriptures speak this way about blood, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's saying his life, his death, his resurrection have redeemed us. This is our calling. He's talking about that in chapter 4. But if you skip over to chapter 4, if you're bored with the theology of Paul, you miss the practical. You don't know what it stands on. You have to have gone back to chapter 1. You have to remember this was being read verbally in one setting. Just being read aloud to the whole church. So they have chapter 1 to look back to. And why is all this happening? It's happening in verse 11, so that all things in heaven and earth are summed up, brought together in Christ. So the high calling that we've been giving is the election, the predestination, and the redemption of our souls to the praise of Christ, who is the head of all things in heaven and on earth. Or we can look at chapter 2, where he becomes much more personal. You remember chapter 2? where he begins to say in the first three verses that we all are dead in our trespasses and sins before we come to Christ. And then what happens? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the high calling is not only our election, our predestination, our redemption. We could also say it's being brought from death to life. We're not dead men anymore. We're not, we're not enslaved to sin, Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you died with Christ, you died to sin? And if you've been raised with Christ, you've been raised to life. And therefore, you're no longer a slave of sin. But you're a slave of righteousness. So present yourself that way to God as a slave. Present your members to God for righteousness sake. This is Paul's command in all of his letters. This is the picture he's pointing for us. What is the calling? It's our election, our predestination, our redemption. What is the calling? It's the fact that we were regenerated, brought from death to life. That's our calling. It's a high calling. This is not a light matter. This is a very grave, eternal matter. And how was this done? By the grace of God. By grace you have been saved. And where are we now? We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. Or <coughs> we could look at chapter 2 at the end. Because this high calling is a calling not only individually but corporately as the church. We've been brought into a body of believers. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. No longer Jew and Gentile, but now one man being brought together in the body, one body of Christ, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So, we're no longer strangers and aliens. No, we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
And we are a holy temple being built up in the Lord. I, therefore, first part of chapter 4, verse 1, points us back to all of this rich and deep and powerful theology. What is the calling? It's not left up to our determination. Paul has laid the foundation. We just go back in the text and see what our calling is. We are children of God. We have been brought into the one body. We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are being knit together, we might say, into a holy temple. How is that happening? Because dead men were made alive by the grace of God and His rich mercy. And how does that happen? Because before the foundation of the world, He chose us, He predestined us, and now He has redeemed us in time through the blood, the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is our high calling. I, therefore, points us back to all of these things, but it also points us back to chapter 3, and it points us back to the prayer that he has just finished praying. Because in this great letter, we have both doctrine and prayer and practical application of doctrine. We have three great things that we can all model our lives after. If you look here at the prayer, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened by the power of His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What a beautiful passage. That we are rooted in Christ and that He is dwelling in us even richer as we grow into His image, as we become more and more like Him. I told one of the students this week, the, the story of the Christian life is simple. You were dead, and he made you alive. And every day, by his grace, through his spirit, you will be more alive than you were the day before. More alive a month from now, a year from now. You say, life isn't quantitative. I mean, you can't say either you're alive or dead. True. But, remember the analogy? Just because he owns the house doesn't mean he's renovated every nook and cranny of the house. So when I say you're more alive 50 years down the road as a redeemed man than you were the day you were saved, I don't mean if you died sometime between the two, you wouldn't have been saved. You're alive, but your heart is being gradually, systematically sanctified, set apart, and he is enthroned in each and every, every nook and cranny of the home of your heart. He's knocking not just at the exterior door, but then he, once he's in and he's eating and drinking with you and having fellowship with you, he points out this over here that he wants and that over there which is his and this job which must be renovated. He begins to take over everything. And that process doesn't happen overnight. This particular student was struggling with sin. Can you imagine that? 20 years old and struggling with sin? How dare he? No, that wasn't my answer at all, was it? It was, I'm struggling with sin too. Your struggle may be different than my struggle, but we're struggling with sin. Why? Because he's renovating us. He's changing us. He's making us like himself through a gradual process. And we see that in chapter 3. So, I therefore points us back into the letter. All that has come before, he says. And then we see in this passage that Paul reminds his readers again of his imprisonment. Now, you would think, that he's gotten that point across already, right? I mean, he's said it a couple of times already, that he's imprisoned. 
especially at the beginning of chapter 3, he pointed out that he is a prisoner for Christ. He's in prison, and the, the church at Ephesus is obviously concerned about that imprisonment. I mean, they're partly, humanly speaking, to blame for his imprisonment because he did what he did in Ephesus and Corinth and all over Asia Minor. He was in prison. So you have to imagine that here these people are in Ephesus who love Paul, and they're a little timid. They feel a little trepidatious about the fact our brother's in prison, and it's partly because of what he did for me. Can you imagine the weight and the burden that they must have carried? And Paul wants to relieve all that because he doesn't say he's a prisoner, again, of Rome. What does he say? He's a prisoner, what? For the Lord. In other words, don't sweat it. I am where I am because God has me there. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm not a prisoner of Rome, and you haven't caused my imprisonment. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Not just physically, but mentally and spiritually, Paul belonged completely and absolutely to Christ, his Lord. The very choice of the word Lord here is important. If we look at this in the second part of verse 1, we see that very word Lord means he viewed himself as a slave. In the Christian world of Paul's day, they did not refer to themselves by many titles. They used a few select titles. One of them was slave. You could argue it was the major title that they chose to name for themselves. Slave. When the New Testament talks about a Christian, it's talking about a relationship between a master and a slave. When you are a Christian, you belong to the Lord. So whatever happens to you in this life, comes through his hand, by his will, for his glory, and your ultimate good. Now, the thing you're suffering through, like Paul's imprisonment, I don't imagine Paul got up every day in a small cell somewhere uh, praising God for his condition in the sense of, boy, this is fun. This is wonderful. I really enjoy this. This is a blast. This is better than sipping hot tea on the coast of, of Greece with some dear friend in the faith. No. No. I picture the Apostle Paul rather glorying in the fact that the Lord would count him worthy to suffer. But he was suffering. Don't ever think that he wasn't suffering. We wrongly, we wrongly apply this sometimes, this idea of being the prisoner of the Lord. See, you might be a prisoner of the, you might be a prisoner of the, you might be, being a prisoner of the Lord, you might be facing, I'll get it right in a minute, Something like a physical imprisonment. I think of someone like Joni Erickson Tata. For almost her entire life, she has been imprisoned in a body that will not work. From the neck down, she has no ability. She can't feel, she can't move, she can't dress herself, she can't eat herself. She can't get in the bed, she can't get out of the bed, she can't go to the restroom. She can't do anything. She's imprisoned. Do I really think that if I interviewed her, she would say, boy, this has been a blast. I mean, this being laying in a bed all the time is the best life ever, physically. I love this. No. If you've ever heard her talk, she doesn't talk that way. She doesn't glory in paralysis. She glories in Christ through her paralysis. So what we see here is I, therefore, 
Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. He's not glorying in a prison cell, just like Joni Erickson Tata doesn't glory in paralysis. He's glorying in the fact that Christ has numbered and counted and directed every day he lives. And I belong fully to him, no matter my condition on this earth. And so what I find Joni Erickson Tata doing is glorying in Christ. As a matter of fact, I've heard her say something close to, I don't think I would be saved today. I would not have come to know Christ had I not been paralyzed. So do I think she's excited about the fact that she's paralyzed? And she's, she's missed out on so much physical pleasure and enjoyment? No, I don't think she's excited about that. But I don't think she would trade it because of what she has received from Christ in her paralysis. She wouldn't trade it. I don't find it healthy to glory in cancer or paralysis or being shipwrecked or being put in prison. That's not where our glory is. Our glory is in Christ through whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. This is the way Paul starts this very practical section out. To tell them what he's going to tell them. He's building a platform. He's about to command that they live like Christians. And by admitting up front that he is a prisoner of the Lord, he calls to remembrance where he is. They immediately would have thought he's in prison because that's where he was physically. And they would have immediately gave him a platform to say, if I live this way in bonds and chains in prison, you better live this way as free men and women. If I live this way in prison, you surely live this way in your home. You surely live this way in your city, in your home city, in your job, in your profession, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife. All these practical things. It, God has given him a great platform. I can imagine the missionary who is almost killed for the faith going in front of his congregation and saying, we should be willing to live unto death. Can you imagine the power in those words when he has almost died himself? He's no longer just talking about something. He has lived it. So Paul, being the great apostle, has lived a life worthy of the calling, even in the worst of circumstances, and now he's calling them to do what he is already doing. Live like you are a child of God. So Paul reminds them of his imprisonment, and he urges them to live out their high calling. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge, beseech, implore, Beg and plead with you to get the, you know, modern feeling. Beg and plead with you to walk, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is basically, he's saying, God has given you the greatest gift. He has given you his son. And he has called you his child. And he has built you into the temple or the place of his dwelling. And he is in the process of binding you even tighter into the spirit of unity which he has blessed you with in the saints. So live your life that way. Don't live your life just as any average Joe settling for the sins and the pleasures of this world, but rather live according to your high calling. Every deed, every thought, every, everything 
which we do should reflect the fact that we are children of God. When I'm finished doing what I'm doing, someone should be able to say, that's otherworldly. That looks a lot like something God would do or bless. We should live according to the high calling which we have been called in. You have been called, therefore live according to your calling. That's the way he says it. You've already been called. You are children of God. You are being built into the holy temple. You have been made from dead to living. Now live that way. Don't live like a corpse. Corpses, by the way, the analogy of being dead and made alive is not that the dead man is inactive. That's not at all what it is. The dead man is actively rebelling against God. In everything they say, do, or think, the lost man is a rebel against the will of God. That's what dead people do. That spiritual deadness is not inactivity. It's inactivity towards God in a positive way. It's the inability to do anything to please God, yes. But on the active side, the dead man was actively pursuing the things of this world in complete rebellion against God. So when Paul says, live your life as a called child of God, he's saying don't live like this world. And don't live in the pattern which you previously lived in as dead men. Seeking the sensual pleasures of this world for a moment and forfeiting the eternal glory which is laid before you in Christ. Don't live that way. Live according to your calling. When I used to go out on dates and when I used to go out with my friends, it wasn't uncommon for my mom or dad to say to me, whatever you do tonight, don't embarrass us. Right? What were they really saying? They were really saying, live like you're our child. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, live like a child of God because you are a child of God. And whatever you say, whatever you do, and whatever thought you have reflects towards Him, positively or negatively. Well, I'm just going to do this one little thing. It's not a big deal. Does it reflect positively or negatively on the character of Christ? Because trust me, everything you do reflects on him one way or the other. Everything. Now, some hear this kind of preaching and they think, oh, he's a legalist. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. Don't use the threat of calling people legalism are guilty of legalism, as a way of living a sinful life. God has not called us to live sinful lives. He's called us to live holy lives, separate lives, different lives, according to our calling in the gospel. And so Paul urges them. He implores them. He pleads with them to live as they are, live as children of God. Secondly, in this passage, Second major point we come to in this passage is that we must love our Christian family to live out our calling as children of God. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That in love is the basis of our life. 
Everything must be done in love. Okay? Now, the ultimate basis we won't get to this week. Because the how question, how can we do this? How can we love one another? How can we exhibit humility and gentleness? How can we exhibit tolerance? How can we be patient? How can we do this? I'm not going to answer that question today. I thought I was, but I'm not. You might not sit there that long. The ultimate basis of everything in our life is the unity of the Spirit. Okay? But kind of a caveat to that, I would say an expression of that is love. He says that we're to live out our Christian calling by loving our Christian family. I know the wording of that bothers some of you. <coughs> because in our day, it's, it's, it's that we should love everybody. Okay? And I'm not saying we shouldn't love lost people. But in the New Testament, the love which flows from your life should go particularly to the people of the covenant family. We're going to get there in just a minute. I don't want to steal my thunder for just a moment. But it's almost looked down on in our day to serve the people of God. Whether that be pastors serving them, deacons serving them, or whether that's just the people of the church serving one another. Y'all are so ingrown. Y'all are so introverted. Y'all just love each other. Yes. Guilty. I hope we're guilty of it. I'm going to show you why in just a moment. Because love is the basis of our walk with, with our Christian family. If you're going to walk in the calling which God has called you to, if you're going to live, walk is just another way to say live, if you're going to live out the calling which God has called you with, you got to love your Christian family. That's why it's repulsive to God to hear Christians say, well, I love God, but I hate the church. No, you don't. You don't love God. Well, you can't say I don't love God. Yes, I can. Absolutely. John said it this way. If you claim to love him whom you have not seen and you hate the one you have seen, you're a liar. He said it pretty strongly. You can't love someone you haven't seen, Christ, and hate your wife. Are you kidding? You can't love Christ and hate the other people in these pews, the people in other fellow believing bodies. Are you kidding me? I've sat with several pastors who said, boy, I love the ministry if it just wasn't for the people. I'd really love it. That's a shame. And it's a sham. You cannot love God and hate His people. That'd be like telling me you love me and hate my children. Try that one on for size. Tell a mama, oh, I love you, Amy. But Hannah Grace and Noah and Lily and Hope, I hate their guts. See how that one works for you. When you do, I'd like to be present. It don't work, does it? And my wife's a fallen creature. She is not God. So if, God, if my wife gets offended when, when someone says they hate her children, how much more offense does God have who laid down his life to purchase those people you hate when you say you hate them? Come on. Set the sham aside. 
Just be honest with us. I don't love God. I don't love Christ. And the way I express it is, I don't love His people. Serving this church is not a burden. It is not a burden. It's a pleasure. I don't, I don't, it's, I don't begrudge going to your home or praying with you or praying for you without you being present or studying the Word that I might teach you. I don't, I don't hate that. It's not a way to earn a paycheck. I would do everything I'm doing now without the paycheck because I love you. And Dave loves you and you love one another. The elders love you and you love the elders and you love one another as we love you because the love of Christ has been richly blessed into our hearts. And that's part of living out. That's kind of part and parcel with living out the wall. Walking the walk, talking the talk, and walking the talk. When the world sees a church that is at war and at each other's throat, the church sees a hypocritical body, a sham, a fake, a phony. And they all say, well, I can do that. <laughs> I hate my neighbor. They're no different than I am. Love is the basis of our walk as Christians in the family of God. Let's look at a couple of verses here together. I've provided them for you. John 13, Jesus says in verses 31 through 35, in the upper room with his men, when Judas had gone out, he waited until Judas was gone because Judas doesn't fit this category that's about to be spoken of. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, you notice that? That's an affectionate way to refer to your friends. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But I leave you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. It's really not new. It's new in the fact that it's applied through Christ now. It's no longer just a thunder from Mount Sinai to love one another. It's been lived out in the life and body and work of Jesus Christ, and so they have an example. Love each other the way I've loved you. That's the newness of the commandment. Because the Old Testament told the saints to love one another. But now it's been lived for them. They have no excuse. Love the way I've loved you. You love one another that way. Why? Verse 35, by this, by what? By the love we have for one another. By this love, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You want to share the gospel? Love one another. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to preach the truth? Live the truth. And it comes out in love for the saints. Paul says it this way. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Listen. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's everyone in the community. But look what he says. And I told you earlier I would prove we're to love one another more than we love the world. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
This is the application of that very practically so you and I can understand it in our day, in our time, in our community. Tornadoes ripped this community, the north half of this community, apart on April the 27th, 2011. And the fact is that every Christian's house should be rebuilt before anybody else's. You say, no, no, we should be rebuilding lost people's houses so we can share the gospel with them. No, because while you drive nails in their house... They're looking at your Christian brother and saying they're living in a tent. So what you're doing for me is phony. That's a sham. Because you don't even love them. The early Christians exhibited this kind of love. Because when a plague broke out in their community, they loved and cared for the dying Christian before they did the lost of their community. It has been lived out from generation to generation, and in our generation, it's being mocked as ingrown faith and being laughed at and told, that's phony. We should love the world. Yes, but love the household of faith first. How would we live it out here at Grace Fellowship if two houses burned down, one being a member of our church and one a person in our community? We would rightly rebuild the person in our church's house first and then help build that person's house. Love the whole world, especially, specifically, first priority given to the household of faith. Why? Because Jesus said, by this they will know you, what? That you love one another. And this, now this one will bother some. And it's this way with the cross. Did God love the whole world on the cross? I had a student ask me that. This week, yes, he did. But he especially loved the ones he came to save. His blood was effectively applied to every chosen child of God. And all lost people receive common grace. But they don't receive the most specific, the most powerful, the most lasting form of love. Only the believer gets that. So if this church went bankrupt rebuilding Christian houses and couldn't build anybody else a house, we've done a good thing, not a bad thing. And see, that sounds so foreign to most of your ears. It, it repels most of you. You think, that's not right. We shouldn't do that. But that's what the New Testament says. Love one another, Jesus said. Love one another. So we see that love is the basis of our walk as a Christian family. How will we love one another, Carlton? If we live in love, we must be patient. We must be patient. If we look at verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That bearing with one another is expressing tolerance and mutual deference to one another. Be tolerant of one another. The little quirks and idioms that we each have, don't call each other out about that. You're only tearing down unity, not building it up. Allow a person to be them. Don't try to make them like you. Be tolerant of them. They're not sinning. Don't rebuke them. They're just weird. You know what? They think you're weird. If we're always pointing out each other's weirdness, we won't love one another. So don't do that. Be tolerant. Bear with one another. Be tolerant with each other. Defer to one another. Defer to one another. 
I would really like to do this, but the rest of the group wants to do this, wants to act in this way, wants to live out this way. I'll just live with them. I'm not going to stand on my little island and make everybody believe like I believe on a non-sin issue. That's not loving. If you're, I mean, it's practical, isn't it? If you're in a group, let's say, of 10 people, and two of you want to go to McDonald's and eight want to go to Hardee's, the two ought to go to Hardee's. I'm making it simple for children and for those older children. They like children, you know? Just, it's no big deal. It's okay. It's all right. It's not a big deal at all. Defer to one another. That showing love, bearing with one another, includes tolerance and mutual deference. But it, love is more than that. It's also patient, <laughs> which biblically means to forbear, to carry the personal offenses acted out against you. Now this one's tough for me. I don't like this one. Because as soon as someone does something, I want to get all puffed up and offended and go tell them they did it. So I can feel better. I can unload on them. But is that what Christ did? He said, love one another as I have loved you. Did he not bear our burdens? Did he not walk patiently with his disciples? He never exploded in frustration with their silliness or their lack of understanding. He just patiently kept walking with them. How much sin did they exhibit in front of him? And he saw it and he prayed about it and he just kept walking with them. Now there comes a point where you, you, you go and confront one about his sin. But if we don't give each other the space and room to grow, understand that none of us have reached perfection, we won't walk in love with one another. You can apply this in your marriage. Men, you're to bear your wife's burdens. I know she's an emotional sap, and you don't think she should be, but that's how God wired her. And you better tolerate and bear, carry that. Not change and correct it. There's nothing worse than seeing a woman who's been browbeaten into acting like a man. You just want to say, act like a woman, you're a woman. But her husband's made her this way because he's made fun of her about her weakness. He's laughed in front of others about her. He's corrected her every chance he got about it. And he's just beat her down. Let her be a woman. Love her. Bear with her. Patiently bearing. Even offenses that she lashes out against you. Not just with patience and not just with tolerance and deference, but if we love one another, then... We must be humble and gentle. Now, gentleness has been totally misunderstood in our day as meekness or worse, as being a sissy. That's not at all what the Bible means. Gentleness in the Bible means you don't defend your rights. That's what gentleness is. You're not running around defending what you deserve. Not always telling someone how they should give you what's yours. <clears throat> but just simply letting your rights aside, setting your rights aside, love the other person. We see an example of this in Paul's taking money from churches. In Corinth, he refused to take their money. Why? 
because he wanted to show them that his labor was out of love and not for gain, profit. <clears throat> that was one of the main reasons he didn't take their money. He had a right to take money from them. He had a right to go in and say, I'm preaching the gospel and it's worthy of its wage. But he didn't take the right. He deferred. That's the beautiful picture of deference. That's the beautiful picture of not demanding personal rights. <clears throat> and humility. Humility is not a false humility whereby we say "Oh, how awful we are at everything as Christians. You've been around those people. That's false humility. Nobody likes that. But rather, it is the confidence that we have placed in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can serve one another. Humility comes out in service. You show me a servant, I'll show you a humble man or woman. You show me someone who doesn't serve, I don't care how humble they think they are, they are not humble. Humility doesn't come out in words, it comes out in actions. It comes out in bearing one another's burdens, being patient and serving. Serving. So, we can summarize by saying, we must live a life worthy of our calling. That's our call. That's our demand. That's Paul's demand. That's the Holy Spirit's demand of us. This can only be done if our lives are characterized by a humble, gentle patient love toward our Christian brothers. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time in your